If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome back to the Motorcast, or welcome for the first time, if this is the first time you've popped in to join us. My name is Howard H. Smith. You may know me as singer from UK thrash band Acid Rain or my other heavy metal podcast, Talking Bollocks. But I am here to be your guide in the Motorcast to all things in the world of Motorhead. No doubt um, some of you have already grabbed hold of the amazing four. 40th anniversary box set which has basically got everything in it it's incredible um i mean it's there's two um deluxe editions the cd edition which is amazing with the the booklet the two cds remastered album the whole kit and caboodle um and then the, the the vinyl box set which is absolutely insane triple lp formats featuring like unheard concerts the ace up from the ace up your sleeve tour um story of the album loads of unseen photos um and it's the the ultimate fan collector edition is is just insane contain it's just a huge area specific treasures um and 42 yes 42 previously unreleased tracks but anyway you already know that if you've got it and if you haven't got it after hearing that you're probably on the way to get it so this is a really key person in the history of motorhead Howard Thompson, who signed uh, Motorhead to their legendary bronze label and was responsible for quite a few of their albums. In this uh, interview, you are going to hear exactly what happened and how it happened. I love this interview, and to make sure that you get this interview and all other interviews in future, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. However you're listening to this, if it's in a podcast player, just click the subscribe button, and instantly, every single episode will come to your phone, to your device, whatever you're listening to on, and you will not miss a thing. So click subscribe wherever you're listening to this, and you'll get all the episodes. Without further ado... It's over to Howard Thompson. Let's start right at the beginning. When did you first come across Motorhead? Probably in the um, about 1976, I think. Um, I was working in my first job in A&R at Island Records in London. And um, I I remember quite quite clearly receiving a letter in the mail one day uh it was typed up and it came from a chap called frank kennington who i believe who said on in the letter that he was the manager of motorhead and would i like to come down to see them because they were showcasing at manticore in fulham broadway now manticore was a um uh, a disused, or yes, a disused cinema um, that ELP had bought as a place for them to rehearse and, I suppose, practice the productions on their shows. I arrive at Manticore, and um, I'm sort of feeling my way down a corridor because it's pitch black inside. And as I'm as I'm approaching what I assume to be the auditorium where there's a stage um i met with this massive roar and it, 
it wasn't just a band. It was just, it was like an airplane was inside the place. And as my eyes were adjusting to the darkness, suddenly um, two lights started careening around the auditorium. There were no seats in this place. It was a cinema. It was empty. Um, and there was a stage, and you could just about see on stage there was some amplifiers because you could see the red lights, but there was no lighting. So there was, this, there was a band playing. You couldn't see them. All you could see was a couple of lights whizzing around the auditorium. And what the roar was, they were two motorcycles. And as one's eyes adjusted, you could see there were a couple of Hells Angels on motorbikes. And they were whizzing around the auditorium while the band was playing. So that was my introduction to Motorhead. That is... Um, you know, I, <laughs> that's incredible. I was, there, I was there to assess their potential for a record deal. And after five or ten minutes, I left because you couldn't hear the band over the, over the noise of the motorcycles and you couldn't see them. So it was just, it was, it was chaos and sort of a waste of time. And I walked out thinking, well, there's another band that I'm passing on. I don't even know who the band was. Obviously it was Lemmy. I suspect it was Luke. I, I suspect it was, I'm pretty sure it was Larry Wallace and quite possibly it was Lucas on drums. But I don't know because you couldn't see. Wow. Um, so um, so, what... so I, went back to my, I went back to my office at Ireland and basically called Frank and said, look, I'm sorry, but no, I'm not interested. Thank you very much. And at some point over the next few weeks I must have I remember seeing them at, at the Marquee Club and thinking well they're not ready so you know life goes on they get a deal I guess with Stiff and then they get a deal with uh, United Artists or maybe it was the other way around um, and I you know continue working at Ireland until I get um, uh, an invitation to go to Bronze Records in the A&R department. And um, so I joined Bronze, and one day I get a call from <laughs> Motorhead's new manager, Douglas Smith. And Doug asks for an interview uh, or a, a meeting. And so we set one up. And I knew Douglas because previous to my time at Island Records, I was a an employee of Trident Studios, where I had started off as a T-boy and worked my way up. And at, and at the time I met Doug Smith, I was working in the disc cutting room where I would make acetates and cut the lacquers for manufacture of records, um, which, would, you know, that, that was, it was disc cutting. And I had cut the follow-up to Hawkwind's Silver Machine, a song called uh, Urban Gorilla, and I had done a single and album for Douglas by Captain Lockheed and the Starfighters, which also included some of Hawkwind, some of the Pink Fairies, Brian Eno, and a couple of others. 
it was basically a Bob Calvert solo album, but uh, uh, it came out under the name Captain Lockheed and the Starfighters, and I and I met Douglas then. So he called me, and we caught up, and he came over to Bronze, and we had a meeting, and he said to me, look, Howard, I want you to come and see Motorhead. And I said, well, you know, you've got to tell you, to be honest, Douglas, I've already passed on the band. I'm not really interested. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Please, I'm begging you, come and see them at Dingwalls. And I don't know how much, how old are you, Howard? I don't, uh, I'm, uh, do you know what Dingwalls was? Uh, oh, uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm 50 and I am aware of the, uh, the oh. legend of Dingwalls. Okay, okay, great. Um, so I said, well, must I? I mean, I've seen them and I've, you know, I've, I've assessed them. And, and quite honestly, you know, by that point, they'd also had a record out on Chiswick and they'd been dropped. So three labels later, they had no record deals, and it looked like Motorhead were finished. And he said to me, listen, Howard, I'll be perfectly honest with you. You are the last label I'm seeing because everybody else has passed, and if you don't do something with this group, they'll probably break up. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> Not that I needed that pressure, but I yeah. didn't really care, you know, one way. I, I, I sort of... I, he, he, he sort of pleaded with me to come and see them at Dingwalls. And since that's my job, I thought, and Dingwalls was just down the road from bronze. I thought, oh, okay, no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll check them out again. Anyway, I, I wasn't looking forward particularly to the show. Yeah. But I walked into the club that night, or the, I think it was a couple of days later that he asked me to come see them. And so I walked in. And the place was packed, and everybody in the joint was wearing either a Motorhead T-shirt or a bullet belt. And I thought, whoa, hold on a minute. This is, this is not what I was expecting. They actually had a rabid audience. And when you're a band that is, like, uh, different to everybody else, and you have a... And you actually have people willing to spend hard-earned cash to come and see you, then there's a market there somewhere. Then they played, and they were fucking fantastic. Um, I'm sorry, they were fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know what this is for. Is this a, a radio a, I, thing? Oh, it's it's okay, mate. Uh, swear away. We're all we're all old <laughs> friends here. Okay. Okay. So they they came out, played, and were really terrific. I, I mean, I walked out thinking, this is great. And I talked to my boss the next day, and I said, listen, I saw something last night. The place was packed. They went down a storm. And then I, and, and I sort of told him the pros and cons of, you know, what I was aware of. And he said, well, why don't you just do a single? So I said, okay. And I offered Douglas a... Uh, 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 no, actually, Doug asked just for a singles deal in our original meeting. He knew he wasn't going to get anything more than a singles deal because Motorhead at that point were poison. And he just wanted the ability to prove there was an audience. So he had said at our original meeting, I want £1,500 for Motorhead to do their version or a Motorhead version of Louie Louie. 
And so that was what they wanted. And I t- called him up and I said, you've got it. We'll do that. And if it charts, we'll, we'll have an option to do an album. So he said, great. Okay. The next thing that happened was he calls me up and says, I think it's time you met the band. So I say, okay, well, um, well, how would you like to do that? And he said, why don't you come down to the studio tomorrow night? They're at Wessex Studios, which was somewhere in North London. I can't remember exactly where it was, but, but it, was, it was a pretty reputable studio. And he said they, they were in the studio for, I think, two days. That was all they could afford. And um, so I said, okay, well, I'll show, I'll show up after work, probably around 8 o'clock. So I, I get to the studio, I bang on the door, and the door opens, and there's Lemmy, all dressed in black, bullet belt, of course. And he says, yeah, what do you want? And I said, uh, oh, hi, um, I'm Howard from the record company. Nice to meet you. And he said, hold on, hold on. And he wouldn't let me come into the actual studio, the control room. And I said, okay. And I mean, I wish I could show you what this, but his, his black shirt sleeves were rolled up and he unrolled his shirt sleeve and out of the folds, he pulled a polythene bag of dubious white powder. (laughs) Yeah. He pulled a switchblade or flick knife out of his pocket, dipped it into the bag, pulled out or, or pulled, pulled it out with a little sort of pile of whatever it was on the end of the fl- on the end of the blade, stuck it under my nose and said, "Snort that." So, <laughs> you know, okay, in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, I, I, I sniffed what was on the knife blade and uh, he said hold on did it again put it under the other nostril i snorted it was clearly well it it wasn't cocaine (laughs) um uh, so i figured well this must be amphetamine sulfate um and and i said okay ready and he said hold on and he walked back into the room and came out with a large can of Carlsberg Special Brew. And he said, drink that in one. So now, uh, you know, I've got a bag, I've got, a, I've, I've got two nostrils filled with amphetamine sulfate, and I've got a can of beer, Carlsberg Special Brew in one hand, and he says to drink it all in one, which I do because I'm, you know, I'm game, and I, I, I want to get inside the studio and hear what they've done. Uh, I I mean, that's a pretty incredible sort of first meeting. It's a fantastic first meeting. I'm thinking, wow, I'll wait till I tell the folks back in the office. Um, But I mean, as soon as I put the, finished the um, can of beer, he turns, his whole attitude changes immediately. He shakes my hand, smiles, says, come on in and shows me to the seat in the middle of the console, in front of the speakers, and says, and he introduces me to Fasetti and Filthy, and Neil Richmond, the producer, and says, this is Howard from the record company, he's come to hear the tracks. Neil, press play. And 
at full fucking volume, he blasts out Louie Louie. Which, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really like. And, but before I said anything, well, no, I, before anything was said, I said, and, do you have a B-side? At which point, they play Tear You Down, which to this day is one of my very, very favorite Motorhead tracks. I mean, in the studio, at full volume, Tear You Down sounded like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to hear from this band. And so, I mean, I burst into, I mean, I was, I was so happy and so effusive about how great everything was. Um, I, I mean, I didn't say, I didn't note my, my uh, uh, disappointment at Louis Louis because, I, you know, Louis Louis okay, but I didn't think they did very much to the song. But, you know, it was, it, it, it was fine. It was what they wanted, and it, and it wasn't embarrassing. But the B-side was stonking. And I thought, well, this is great. This will be fine. So, um, you know, we, we ended the evening. I mean, I, didn't let, I wasn't there very long. They had some stuff to clean up and uh, finish off. But uh, I left, and that was that. You know, the single, we, we, we scheduled the single. We put it out. And uh, <laughs> it, it charted, but it charted at 75 or something really, really low. Yeah. And we thought, and we thought, oh, well, that's it. You know, this is no good. But somehow our promotion man at Bronze, a guy, a fellow called Roger Bolton, um, managed to get them on, on top of the pops. And in those days, the BBC weren't interested in any um, in anybody being invited to appear on top of the pops who were not within the top thirty. Yeah. So I don't know what I don't know what Roger did uh, or how he did it, but somehow he got Motorhead on top of the pops. And, and so they did Top of the Pops, and the following week, there was a gap of one week where they dropped out of the charts, and the following week, it charted again, and I think this time it went into the 60s or something. It wasn't a, it wasn't a very um, significant chart position, but it did go back into the charts, and we, and we felt that with that Top of the Pops appearance, um, we were we were sort of off to the races, so we we picked up the album option. We um, secured Jimmy Miller to produce the record, and that was that. I, I think um, we got as far as releasing Overkill and No Class, and I think that's when I left Bronze Records to join CBS. Um, because to be perfectly honest. As I said, or as Douglas said at the beginning, at the at the front of this, in our first meeting, Bronze was basically the last the label that he'd come to. He'd come to. He'd seen all the others, and that was typical. Bronze, although it was good at what it did, it it had no hip factor. 
it was not a place that people went to first to get a record deal. In fact, it was, it was a place people went to last. Nobody really wanted to be on the same label as Uriah Heep. Nobody really wanted to be on the same label as Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to insult the fans of those bands, but they weren't <laughs> the hippest groups at the time. Yeah. And, and they were our biggest groups. They were the, they were the biggest six. They were the things that kept the label alive until that point. So, you know, uh, I, when I was offered a job uh, at CBS Records, I took that one. And, I, and that was really the extent of um, my dealings professionally with Motorhead. Um, I became friendly with the band over the course of the next many years and to the point where I do believe that Lemmy um, felt slightly indebted to me for keeping Motorhead going. Um, but, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't like to claim that uh, really because... Um, I, I don't know. I, I think they would have found a way to keep going anyway. But uh, whenever they played New York City, all I had to do was call either Douglas or, or, or Todd, Todd Singerman, Singerman to, to um, get backstage and uh, meet with Lem and the boys. And, um, you know, later on I signed Fastway to CBS or to Columbia Records in America. Uh, and that was Eddie Clark's band with Jerry Shirley and Dave King. Um, uh, so, you know, um, that's really it. That's, that's all I've got for you, Howard. I hope it was enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I, I, one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Firstly, I just wanted to put it out there sure. that I have, sure. very, I have very fond memories of, um, of bronze records. I remember the... Um, I remember the label, I remember the design, I remember having a few things on it um, in my formative musical years. So, um, sure. Uh, and also, um, the the cliche of A&R men from the music business is very much kind of these these suits who don't really know anything. And yet you tell a story of, of being, you know, literally hands-on cutting acetates back in the day and, and involved in some incredible things. Yeah. And... Um, it's uh, it's an amazing tale, uh, it, and it completely contradicts, of course, you know the the, the stereotype that's been built up over the years. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I I, <laughs> but to, I, whether or not it was to my benefit, uh, I never really hung with the clique of A and R people. Um, I always, if it, in England and in America, they they all tend to know each other and all tend to sort of scout or follow the same kind of things. And when somebody signs something that breaks, then all the others try to find something that's similar um, or going to be the next one of those. Actually, what I always did was go in the opposite direction. And I, I mean, it made, it made for a somewhat lonely existence. But if uh, everybody, like when I was at Electra, um, everybody wanted more motley crew i signed Ten Thousand maniacs because i wanted a folk rock group on the label and you know i, I just gen generally i kind of always went against the grain whatever's popular now it's too late you've got to find what's going to be popular in years to come and and so you know i, I was always looking for something different 
Yeah, and did it did it surprise you when um, that Motorhead had struggled so much with previous labels when when what you saw at Dingwalls was a perfectly viable proposition as a band? What was going wrong? Well, no, it didn't surprise me because <laughs> if you do something for long enough, you get better at it. And I, I just think Motorhead figured it out, you know, they weren't great in the beginning. Who's great in the beginning? No one. You have to pay your dues. You have to put the work in. You put the hours in. And, you know, eventually you've got more than 10 songs. You've got 30 songs. So you pick the best ones. And suddenly you've got a repertoire. And, you know, you've, you've played the things so often that you can almost do them blind or in your sleep. So th then you can you know, add some other element to your stagecraft, like, you know, the showmanship or the lighting or something, things that aren't so important at the beginning, but become important the way, it, you know, in due course. I, I, I always, I mean, it's funny that you, you, you say that, that ask that question, because there was one other act that I was involved with fell very much along similar lines. I signed Adam and the Ants to CBS, ah. but I had passed on them. I had passed on them as well. And, you know, I watched Adam when he was on Decca Records. I watched him, you know, when he did that Jubilee soundtrack song. And I watched him on Do It Records. And, you know, as good as Adam and as visionary as Adam was, he hadn't quite got it right. By the time I had, I saw him again at the Empire Ballroom in Leicester Square, which was filled with about 2,500, maybe 3,000 crazed ant, ant fans, um, the record industry had written him off. He'd been dropped by two labels. He was basically a laughing stock in the press. I don't know if you remember that, but... Um, the only other record company in the audience that night was a fellow from Virgin Records. I was alone. And the place went mental. And I thought, oh, my God, this has got to be worth a punt. Um, plus, Adam had got it right. You know, he'd finally figured out how to put on a great show. He'd got the outfits. He'd got the two drummers on drum risers. You know, everything about it. He'd spent his own money putting together. And... Um, you know, I just think if you have a strong vision and you are doing something that nobody else is doing and you're allowed to do it for long enough, you'll get it right. And, you know, it was just really timing, Howard. You know, I don't think I'm any better than hundreds of, you know, good A&R scouts or people out there. But, you know, I, I am sort of dedicated to the craft. And I do know that people improve over time. So sometimes, you know, you can be a little too early um, and decide, well, this isn't what I'm looking for. But maybe if you're smart, you go back again two years later and see how they've progressed and maybe they're ready then. And that's exactly what happened in, Mot in Motorhead's case and in Adam's case. Um, do, do you think that process is um, is dead now? 
Oh, I don't know because I haven't done this since 1999. And, ah, you got um, out just I in time, sure mate. Exactly. I mean, I got out when everybody started making records at home. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know... That's a great way of putting using, it. Using, their com using a computer to record when I was used to spending $1,000 a day, if not more, in recording studios using people who know how to mic up a bass rig or a drum set or a piano or a vocal. You know, it's easy to sit in your bedroom and slap a mic up and then make a noise, but you don't, you don't make good-sounding records that way. And having come out of the studio system, especially Trident, which was definitely one of the very best studios in the world at the time. I mean, you know, we were making David Bowie, Elton John records, you know, Genesis records. So, you know, it was it was really top notch. And you know, you know, when you're sitting in the cutting room making acetate, you know what a good sound is. I, I, I think the whole thing changed considerably, especially in the 2000s. If you know, there's very few people with the vision that even Lemmy had, um, or David Bowie had, or Bob Dylan has. You know, you can be like Bob Dylan, but you'll never be Bob Dylan. And and um, uh, you know, the thing with the the internet is it's, it's leveled the playing field so much that you have to wade through a million people to find a single nugget of goodness. Yes, yes, and I think uh, I think what you're saying speaks to finding that finding the genuine article, and that is um, exactly. And they... sorry, it's so much tougher, and, and, yeah. and because because the the um, it's now open to everybody. Whereas before there were gatekeepers, and and you know that might be good or that might be bad, but at least there was a certain quality allowed before one was allowed to make records. You know, you come to a record company and say, I want to make a record. Well, the record company is going to have to spend quarter of a million dollars um, before they know whether they can, they're going to get anything back. And so they had to be what the record company thought might be commercial or at least be able to sell something the first time around and the second time around and the third time around and then maybe recoup the fourth time. Yeah. You know, but these days, you know, it, it, it doesn't work like that. And I wouldn't know where to start. I know what sounds good and I know what talent is, but I wouldn't know how to develop it or market it these days. Yeah. I, and, nor, and I'm not really that interested. I've, I've been there. I've done that. I've worked with some of the best people. The only person that I wasn't able to work with was John Lennon that I wanted to work with. Everybody else I've, you know, I've had some dealings with. Um, and, and, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have been involved at a time when music was, was very, very exciting. Um, these days, I don't get very excited. Although, you know, there are good records being made and there are good artists around. And I try to find them because so, I have a radio show. But, you know, um, it's, uh, I tend to find mostly... The music that I like these days is made by people in their 50s and 60s, if not <laughs> 70s. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, I'll send you a link to my band's album. I'm, I, I've just turned 50, Excellent. so that quali that qualifies. <laughs> <laughs>
Please do. Well, look, Howard, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate it. And 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 I have right, to say, well, I have please... to say, on behalf of everybody listening, thank you for your contribution to keeping Motorhead going. Oh, well, you know, it was my pleasure. Every time I ever had any dealings with the band was a total joy. Um, it was funny. It was thrilling. It was exciting. And, and they were good people. You know, I, I always say, um, however fearsome Motorhead's image might have been, I would have been happy any day of the week to take them all home to meet my mum. And, you know, and I know they would have behaved and been as polite and as um, respectful as anybody would want. Um, so they were good people, too. You pick and choose people uh, uh, and in this life. And, and I try to pick people that I hang out with or I work with that are basically, you know, decent types. And, and Motorhead were, were really way up there. And they're definitely without doubt have always been one of my proudest signings oh that's 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 great and and thank you again thank you very much for your time really appreciate it <laughs> okay all right well, nice talking to you howard and you, you take, take care, care howard right. bye well i hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as i did doing it fascinating stories and a, a fascinating guy and um great to speak to and great to get all of that all of that knowledge, all of those facts from from the man himself, from the man who's there. Um, so that is the end of this episode, but there are plenty more to come. Make sure you don't miss any. I know I keep saying subscribe, but the reason I'm saying that is because if you do, you will not miss an episode. Um, for all things Motorhead, to find out all uh, what's going on in the social media, anything going on in the Motorhead camp, go to imotorhead.com the official Motorhead website, imotorhead.com, and that's where you can find out absolutely everything. Plenty more interviews to come, plenty more Motorhead history to come. That's all from me and the Motorcast. Until next time. I don't say agreed. The only card I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades.